You're listening to a podcast produced by the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies, the Centre for West European Studies and the EU Centre at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit our website at jsis.washington.edu forward slash cwes euc. This event is arranged by the American Council on Germany, which was founded in 1952 by returning American members of the armed services. And they thought Germany deserves better. And that was the beginning of a great uh, connection and bridge building event with Germany and the United States. And with this program, we are welcoming Ambassador Matusek here, he has stories, he has so much to say, I don't want to take away from it, but as I said, you will be impressed about German and American politics. Thanks all for coming. May I introduce you? Uh, thank you, thank you all for being here. It's a great pleasure and honor for me. I had a wonderful tour of the campus and I'm delighted that you waited for me here because that focuses the mind and you can prepare yourself for the important stuff I have to share with you. I don't know if you know who I am. Did you get a flyer or so? Who am I? Ambassador, yeah. And uh, where? In Europe? Okay, so, pardon? Okay, good. So very briefly, I've been a, a, a diplomat for almost 40 years. I've been ambassador to the United Nations, to Britain, to India. I served for a long time in DC as DCM, and I was the chief of cabinet of Hans-Dietrich Genscher. That was the foreign, foreign minister with the ears, with the big ears. And I served in the office of Helmut Schmidt, a former <coughs> chancellor. And what I would like to do this morning, spend some time with you to talk about the world out of joint and the question which occupies all of us, is this the end of the West as we know it? Now, <clears throat> as you will have noticed in the last couple of years, especially in the last couple of months, there was a notable increase in political instability. And even before the latest crisis in Ukraine, in Syria, Iraq, we have seen seven major wars in the last year alone, a noticeable increase in Salafist terrorist attacks, higher incidence of mass protests and government crisis in both developed and developing countries. And most analysts like myself, we are used to treat each incident as idiosyncratic, as contained, but the big question is, is there something systemic about it. The writer Roger Cohn, whom you might know as an editorialist of the New York Times, called this current period the great unraveling. Now usually we can identify incidents and turning points only after they have occurred. But several major trends, transformations, make the international order today messier, 
more complicated than it ever has been in recent history. And very importantly, many of these risks are interrelated in ways that we barely begin to understand. So let us look at some underlying factors. First, the geopolitical order is changing. Most established powers are busy with internal challenges and with cleaning up after the economic and financial crisis. Meanwhile, emerging powers push boundaries to test their new strengths. BRICS, Iran, Turkey, to name but a few. The EU, on the other side, does not seem willing or able to take over more international responsibility. And <clears throat> second, the system of global governance is under strain. We have moved from a US-dominated world to a multipolar one, and some analysts even see a global power vacuum and call it the G0 world. The rising number of relevant actors and potential spoilers makes it ever less likely that the community of states can act collectively. And at the same time, countries' ability to solve problems on their own is weakening. And this leaves the world with a huge gulf, a gulf between demand for and supply of international governance. The inability to find coordinated solutions in turn exacerbates broader risks, for example, risks stemming from climate change, from cybercrime, migration, or the unraveling of multilateral trade and finance regimes. <coughs> the third trend, the nature of conflict is changing. State-to-state -state conflict is increasingly rare. Instead, we see a growing incidence of irregular or interstate strife. Very weak or failed states can be as big a risk as rising great powers. Technology has changed the nature of conflict. And what we see is now described as hybrid warfare. States and other actors do not only use guns and tanks, they use drones, social media, cyber attacks. And finally, we see regional orders collapsing or at high risk. War has returned to Europe as Russia is challenging the post-Cold War order. In the Middle East, borders that were drawn 100 years ago are under threat, and in Asia, China is pushing boundaries in its neighborhood. And a new actor on the scene, North Korea, is putting not just its immediate neighborhood on risk, but has all the ingredients of causing a major, if not a global, nuclear accident. Now, our ability to predict major crises, let alone to prevent them, appears to be weakening. Let's go back three years. In 2014, for example, with the exception of some Eastern Europeans, nobody could have imagined how serious the Russia-Ukraine conflict would get. 
And again in 2014, it is astonishing that the rise of Daesh or ISIS came as a surprise even after they had controlled Fallujah and some other regions in Iraq for months. And this raises the question, what are we missing right now? The reason for this lack of foresight and imagination is not that we lack good analysts and good data. The world's think tanks and research institutions are full of smart and well-informed people. However, the more complex and complicated the world gets, the harder it is to get it right. Moreover, the world of politics seems to suffer from a kind of attention deficit. The portfolios of foreign ministries and national security institutions are so full and the amount of potentially relevant information so vast that they are more likely to overlook or misjudge the signals among the static, the signals among the noise. And for political leaders today, it is much more difficult to focus on one or two critical items which they would need to do to respond to each issue effectively. Now, let us look together briefly at some of the most pressing issues in world politics. Russia-Ukraine. The conflict between Russia and Ukraine is the most dangerous crisis for European stability in years. Russia is a big nuclear power. It is highly integrated into the world economy and it is the world's largest gas exporter and also responsible for 12% of global oil exports. There is a risk that the Minsk Peace Accord will unravel. However, a couple of weeks back, Putin made a proposal of sending UN peacekeepers, blue helmets, into this troubled region. Now, there was the immediate knee-jerk reflex of many leaders in the West to, uh, to repudiate it right out of hand, because what Putin wanted was blue helmets as sort of bodyguards for OSCE observers. <coughs> he wanted to have it only on the line of conflict, and he wanted Russian peacekeepers involved there. It's clear that that is not acceptable, but like so often, if the idea is out there, I think one could develop on it, because Minsk has come to a standstill because on the one hand the obligation of Kiev to change the constitution, to change the election law and to hold elections in the Donetsk is dependent on the withdrawal of heavy weaponry from the line of conflict back into Russia and two sides waits for the other one to make a move. Now the Ukraine-Russia conflict has systemic implications. This is not only a bilateral conflict. It is also, perhaps even primarily, the result of an aggrieved former superpower trying to test the resolve of the transatlantic alliance. The West, in my view, <coughs> now needs to pursue a double-track strategy. On the one hand, it needs to maintain a cohesive and firm stance vis-a-vis -vis Russia and, very importantly, provide more support for internal reforms in Ukraine. On the other hand, 
if the West, <coughs> on the other hand, the West needs to cooperate with Russia wherever possible to prevent a further isolation and radicalization there. But there are limits to what we can do as long as Vladimir Putin believes he can get away with invading a neighboring country. The outlook for stability in Europe remains highly uncertain. In the long run, Russia will likely return to cooperation. It has little choice given its dire economic and demographic situation and its dependence on selling raw materials to the rest of the world. In the meantime, Russia should be able to sustain its adversarial course for quite some time since it has large foreign exchange reserves and a population that can take a lot of strain. The most likely outcome is therefore another so-called frozen conflict and a prolonged period of no trust or even tensions between Russia and the West. A further escalation is a non-negligible risk. Second point of high risk, Syria, Iraq, Turkey. Again, the mess in Syria and Iraq is not a local breakdown of order. It is a combination of failures on three levels. First, the international system is failing the region. The US used to guarantee stability in this region, but it now wants only a remote and minimal involvement. And although 70% of Middle Eastern oil goes to Asia, China does not play a security role in the Middle East. Regional powers are failing to bring stability. On the contrary, the regional rivalry between three coalitions, Iran, Iraq, Assad, and recently Russia, versus Saudi Arabia, United Emirates, Bahrain, versus Turkey, Muslim Brothers, Qatar. These three coalitions are in rivalry, and this rivalry is visible in every conflict from Yemen to Egypt. And these regional rivalries are also stoking the region's sectarian conflicts. Individual states in the regions are also failing. Many are now only hollow shells. And this has created room for the rise of various militias. These groups do not only fight, but they train people, they produce and sell oil, they provide social services, and give the people in the region a sense of local belonging. In addition, there are long-standing ethnic and confessional fault lines. Daesh or ISIS is just one manifestation of the politicization of Sunnis. And even though it is almost defeated in Syria and Iraq, it sends its tentacles overseas, Libya, Nigeria, and numerous terrorist groups in Europe. What we now see is a full-fledged war, a proxy war, between the Shia and the Sunni. If you are looking at Iran, Iran sees itself as the dominant Shia power, which now commands a Shia crescent from the Hezbollah in Lebanon to the Alawites in Syria, to the Shiite majorities in Iraq, the theocracy in Iran, and the Hazaras in Afghanistan. And on the other side, you have a coalition 
admittedly a brittle coalition, mining, uh, 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 mainly financed by Saudi, but in this coalition you have the Emirates, you have Turkey to a large degree, and other uh, Sunnis. Now what are the systemic implications? Since this is not a local conflict, a broader solution would be required. The United States and Iran would have to come to an agreement so Iran gets interested in maintaining and not challenging the regional order. There would have to be detente between Iran and Saudi Arabia and some sort of regional security architecture. The grievances of the Sunnis in Iraq and Syria would have to be addressed, which would require new ideas and how to share and how to institutionalize power. The states in the region would have to be reorganized into loser federal entities so that local government can be more responsive and serve as a proxy for tribes, for sects and militias. Now it looks highly unlikely that all these factors will come together. In the near term, there is no positive scenario for the region. The best we can expect is containing the conflict and we need something which is in short supply, namely strategic patience. Let me come to Asia-Pacific. The risk of an armed conflict in the East or South China Sea remains low, but it's not negligible, and its impact would be huge. <coughs> the state of play is precarious. China has a large number of border disputes, from the Himalayas to the Nine-Dash Line in the East China Sea. The South China Sea is not only a critical byway for trillions of dollars in trade. There are likely to be enormous oil and gas reserves under its seabed. China's neighbors are concerned about China's growing assertiveness and are seeking closer ties with the US. And both China and Japan are run by more assertive and nationalist leaders. And in the region more generally, many historic grievances have yet to be dealt with. What are the systemic implications? The fundamental setup in Asia-Pacific would seem very prone to conflict. China is a rising, economically strong regional power. And because it is an authoritarian state, it might be tempted to use external enemies to distract attention from domestic failures. China's neighbors are relatively much weaker. China will be tempted to challenge the predominance of the US as a Pacific power. And there is a new element of high risk which I would like to dwell on in a few moments, and that is North Korea. Now, you all follow the news, and my opinion is North Korea is not the strategic enemy of the United States. North Korea is a mosquito, but the mosquito can be lethal. It can bring you malaria, dengue, chikungunya, and the recipe to deal with North Korea might be found in the words of a great American president about 100 years ago who said, if you deal with enemies, speak softly, but carry a big stick. 
Now, speaking loudly and carrying a small stick is not such a good idea. <laughs> and the question is, how do we get the genie back into the bottle? You will remember that we already had a pretty well-functioning system, the so-called six-party talks, to freeze the nuclear endeavors and ambitions of North Korea until a couple of years ago. Now, that was broken off some years ago, and since then, North Korea has made enormous progress in developing a nuclear weapon and on an effective uh, international uh, and intercontinental uh, scale. The window of opportunity for a preemptive pre military strike has closed as because, as we all know, it would put more than 25 million, million civilians in the greater Seoul region at risk. Now, <clears throat> what can be done? I think the key to this problem to a large degree lies in China. China is practically the only lifeline left for the North Korean regime. So why is China not cranking up the pressure even more than they do now? I think the answer for the Chinese is very simple. They are afraid of the risk of an implosion of North Korea with tens of millions of refugees. And of course, they also want to avoid a hot front a hot front between China and the American troops, which are now in South Korea, and the American allies, the South Korean straight forces. So, which options are still open? In my view, there is the option of not hard sanctions, not soft sanctions, but smart sanctions, pinpointed sanctions, to explain to the North Koreans that it is in their interest at least to go back to the negotiating table and talk about a freeze. Kim Jong-un is not a madman. He has watched very carefully what happened with Pakistan, with India, and to a certain degree Israel. If you have the nuclear weapon, you are relatively immune to political blackmail. So if you take, for instance, Iran as a blueprint, what happened with Iran? I had the dubious pleasure to negotiate the first four sanctions on Iran. Iran had to make the choice either to be part of the international economy and to secure jobs for its young population or go on the course of becoming a nuclear weapon power against the rest of the world. And after a long process, which was very unwieldy, we agreed to the, the nuclear agreement uh, with Iran. I know that this is being criticized quite heavily in this country, but I think it is the best we could get, the best we could opt for, and I go regularly to Iran and see that the mood in the country is becoming much, much better as far as the West is concerned because they see the actual benefit of the lifting of the sanctions. Will it, in the case, will it work in the case of North Korea? I don't know, but I think it is worth a try. Now, I described a pretty gloomy picture of crisis points around the world. The question is, what can the West do about it? If we look at our toolbox, 
If we look about at, at the instrumentarium at our hand, we see that practically all big international organizations who are halfway efficient are Western institutions. The United Nations, NATO, European Union, OSCE. There are some uh, uh, non-Western institutions like the, the BRICS Development Bank, that the South Asia Regional Corporation, etc. But the glue which holds them together is different from the ones we have because it's not based on the West. What is the West? The West is not geographical. The West, in my view, is a set of values, rules and institutions on the basis of the achievements of the American and French Revolution, the Wilsonian principles, the International Declaration of Human <coughs> Rights, the Charter of Paris, etc., etc. Let's look at the United Nations. The United Nations, and especially its central organ, the, uh, the Security Council, is the only global institution who can set law, which is, which is binding for everybody, if you're in the Security Council or not. Now, the Security Council at the moment is very often blocked, blocked by veto or by threat of veto, as a matter of fact, much, much more than during the time of the Cold War. Why is that so? One of the reasons is that it's losing heavily its authority because it does not reflect the power play of the world of today. It reflects the composition of power at the end of the Second World War. India, with 1.3 billion people, is not represented. The whole of the African continent is not represented. Latin America is not represented, but you have two, or with Russia, two and a half Europeans on it. So this is the reason why for the last 33, 40 years, 34 years, we negotiate in the UN on a reform of Security Council. It is not the issue if Germany should be there or not. I couldn't care less as long as, as it works. But it is something which is very, very long-winded and unwieldy, and we don't make great progress. I used to say to, if German politicians ask me at my time in New York, I believe it's going to come. It's like the return of the Messiah. It will come, but probably not in my lifetime. <laughs> so, what's happening in the meantime? In the meantime, a lot of these resolution and conflict-solving talks are wandering off into the so-called G-groups, G7 which was originally conceived as a forum of the seven biggest economic powers between Helmut Schmidt and Giscard d'Estaing. But as they sit together, they talk about, of course, all the political issues. Similar thing, the G20 <coughs> created after the world financial and economic crisis. The advantage is you don't need a big structure. You have the people who really can make a difference come together and sit around the table. The downside is these groups, these coalitions of the willing, they lack legitimacy. And as we have seen in the Iraq war, you need legitimacy to gain allies and friends and to keep them. And we, in our democratic societies, we do not want to be ruled or governed by governments who are not seen as legitimate. Now let's look, let's take another look to the European Union and NATO. These two pillars of Western institutions 
have given us in Europe and to a certain degree across the Atlantic an unprecedented period, 70 years of stability, peace and prosperity had never happened in European history before. <coughs> however, however, it seems to have become brittle. If you look across the Atlantic to Europe, what do you see? You see a huge influx, millions of refugees from other countries and apparently the inability of Europe to deal with that in a proper way. You see people drowning in the Mediterranean. You see a growing gap between the rich countries in the north of Europe and the poorer countries in the south of Europe with 50% youth unemployment in Greece, for instance, and that in a common currency group which was created to stabilize and to equalize living conditions at a higher scale. You see countries in Europe who quite openly challenge the values of the West. Poland, who says, we, the president, parliament, we want to decide who sits in our Supreme Court. Or you see Hungary, Orban calls this regime himself an illiberal democracy. He's not very fond about an independent press. So the question is, how long can that hold? And you have one country who is halfway out of the door, out of the door Britain. Britain is about to leave the European Union, Brexit. You have at our borders something which we had never anticipated. War has come back to our borders. You have Ukraine. You have an increasingly domineering and hostile Turkey, who at one stage was to become a full-fledged member of the European Union. And you see in NATO a growing uneasiness of the biggest contributors to our common security, the United States, about the future, the cohesion of the alliance. Now, it was a, a historical step which cannot be overestimated, the decision by Truman and Marshall not to go back over the Atlantic after the Second World War like they did after the First War, but to stay put, to grant the Europeans the Marshall Plan, and to give a security guarantee. And under that nuclear umbrella of the United States, we could flourish for years. Now, since the fall of the Iron Curtain, since the fall of the Berlin Wall, we experienced a very, very short-lived end of history. If you remember the great <coughs> book by Frank Fukuyama, The End of History. The good guys won, the bad guys lost. Unfortunately, this end of history lasted about a week. <laughs> because immediately afterwards, the old demons came out of the bottle again. The Yugoslav succession wars, uh, the crisis at our Eastern European border, etc. And it's quite legitimate, it's quite legitimate to ask now, what kept the alliance together was the threat of mutually assured destruction during the nuclear period of the Cold War. But since the Soviet Union was not there anymore, why the hell do we need NATO? And this was our idea when I served at Washington in the mid-90s. We said, okay, let's do something which we call partnership for peace. We want to have a good security relationship with our eastern neighbors. But on the whole, don't let's do anything which might antagonize the Soviet Union, as it was still, still then, or later on, Russia. 
On the other hand, as Eastern European countries wanted to come into NATO, the rest of us thought we really cannot shut the door in their faces after we have solemnly proclaimed we want a Europe whole and free. And since that time, we have seen several frozen conflicts. We have seen Georgia, we have seen Ukraine. And here in the United States, many people ask themselves, why should we really pay for the common security when the Europeans, who made a lot of money, who had the backseat all along, could really come up for the cost of their own security as well as we can. And this is not just a new uh, uh, development under the Trump administration. If you remember the famous uh, interview President Obama did with the Atlantic Monthly, he said the same thing, only more polite words. So, Angela Merkel comes back from the G7 summit in Taormina and from the NATO summit in Brussels and she said, the time that we can totally rely on others is over. We have to take fate into our own hand. When she said that, all hell broke loose because is she questioning NATO, etc.? Of course not. NATO remains indispensable for our security and the United States remains the indispensable nation. However, if you put the Article 5, uh, 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 Article 5 clause that means the assistance clause into question, then this security guarantee has already gone. You don't have to wait till the Soviet Union, for instance, attacks Estonia along the small corridor to Kaliningrad. A security guarantee works only as long as people believe in it. No, what we have to do on our side is to finally come up with the fulfilling our commitment of the so-called 2%. 12, 13 years ago, we committed ourselves in Prague at the NATO summit, politically, not legally, that in the end, each and every one of us should pay 2% of its GDP for the common security. Now, we are only at 1.1% in Germany. But what do the 2% mean? The Americans pay half for security, but their firepower, the efficiency of their weapon system is five times as high. Where the Americans have one system on naval vessels, we have 27. The question is, do you really need an independent air force of Estonia or a navy in Luxembourg? Of course, no. So a lot can be done by coordination and harmonization. And the 2%, you know, you can fiddle with the figures. The Belgians, for instance, they raise the pensions of their officers to reach the 2%. <coughs> the Greeks have a tank army which is three times as big as the German army. The downside is they bought these tanks from us on credit. So my colleague, my colleague Wolfgang Ischinger, whom you might remember as German ambassador in Washington sometime, made the proposal two years ago to come up with an obligation of 3% including the defense, development aid, humanitarian aid, and diplomacy. And that might do the job. Now, <clears throat> let me focus a little bit more on a smaller issue, and then, then I think I, I should stop. Give, give, me, give me three minutes. We've had two important developments in Europe in the last fortnight. One was the elections in Germany 
where for the first time you got a pretty nasty neo-Nazi party in parliament, the AFD. How could that happen? Our neighbors say, welcome to the club, but in Germany it is a very special situation. And on the other hand, you see people heeding the wake-up call of the elections here, of Brexit, of Marine Le Pen, of Gerd Wilders. All of a sudden, you have demonstrations all over Europe of young people, pro-Europe. And the other event I, I, I won't mention is the speech of President Macron. Here you have a young French president who single-handedly smashed the French party system, who boxed through very courageous labor reforms, and that on a pro-European platform for a European finance minister, for a European monetary fund, for a Euro uh, parliament, for a European army, where the French bring their independent nuclear strike force, the force de frappe, into this army, for a European uh, uh, asylum law, for a European FDI, etc. And I think we are very, very well advised not to reject some of these ideas who go a little bit far out of hand, but really work on them. And so I stop here because I'm running out of time and I want to give you uh, time uh, uh, to challenge this. What I did to, at the moment, I did not tell you the true gospel. I gave you an opinion, my opinion, and I'd be happy to have that opinion challenged by you guys, please.